Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is John with Staging a Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking to my friend Stephen. Stephen works for Lakeland Bases, and he has his own uh, guitar workshop that he has on Facebook, Stevie G's Guitar Workshop. So, uh, hey, Steve, what's happening, man? Hey, buddy. It's kind of nice to be doing this with somebody in the room instead of in a set of headphones. Yeah, it's got to be odd, actually, talking to, like, just talking to folks in person. Yeah, uh, well, it's for me, it's more weird talking to them on the telephone because I hate the telephone. Yeah, same. So, I would I would go nuts trying to actually do, like, the telecommunication Zoom kind of interview. You know, Zoom might be better. You know, Zoom meets, anything like that, because then you could have a video and at least uh, you'd be seeing each other. Somewhat faux eye contact. Yeah, <laughs> where, you know, currently... Uh, the process I'm doing is uh, with the just audio-based app. Yeah. And that makes things difficult. Yeah. So, yeah, anyways, it's a nice uh, chilly Saturday afternoon here in northwest Indiana. Um, how about uh, tell people how you got into music in the first place, man? How I got into music is just an age-old story. I brought up around it, you know, spent my childhood around campfires with my uh, dad's friends and him just singing Beatles and Neil Young songs, listening to Dead Hour on the radio, and um, really, like, around, I mean, I guess it was kind of like I was always destined to have something to do with music, because by the time I was, like, five or six years old, I was, you know, standing in front of the TV with my little plastic toy guitar, just imitating, you know, Keith Richards and stuff like that. Like, I heard you bring it up, I think, in the episode with Tim. Was, uh, you guys were talking about, like, that thing that really got you, that, like, movie or that moment that actually got you into it, and you talk about La Bamba. Yeah. You brought that up with me multiple times. And for me, I, I mean, it's, like, probably Back to the Future, you know, the whole end scene of that. But mostly, I mean, mostly it was actually, like, live music on television, like my dad would take my brothers to concerts back, you know, mid nineties. Yeah, and I always wanted to go, but my ma and probably my dad too. Just they, you know, you're too young, too this. young for this. Too, and they they go see the Rolling Stones. They go see Neil Young and Jethro Tull, and uh, the Rolling Stones one. They did a uh, a simulcast of the concert from the week before from okay. St. Louis, and this is the '96 Bridges to Babylon tour. So while they were at the concert, uh, me and my mom watched and recorded on the VCR uh, the St. Louis show. And I wore that tape out, like watching it all the time. Like I said, my toy plastic guitar in my hands, you know, whatever big long jacket and like headband and bracelets I could put on to try to be Keith Richards and stuff like that. And like the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus uh, was another one that was like turned me on to all sorts of awesome artists like Jethro Tull, like. Uh, the Who and never seen any episodes of that. You never watched that one? Oh, it's so good. No, because that's the one that's got the uh, Dirty Mac performance. Now I've seen the Dirty Mac performance, but yeah. I've never seen a full episode. I mean, it's 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 just like about an hour and a half long movie. You get it starts. It's Jethro Tull with when, with Tony Iommi, the one time he actually played with them. Oh, nice. And it was the the song uh, song for Jeffrey, the only song he ever played on, the only song he ever did because he joined the band, did that song. And, and then, then immediately started Black Sabbath. Nice. So like, um, and it's really cool because this is it, it. Like, 
you see it in that uh, the reason why Song for Jeffrey has the guitar tone that it has is because, well, one, it's Tony Iommi. And two, it's I, I don't know if he just didn't have his prosthetic fingertips yet or if he just, you know, for that tune didn't use them. But he has little slides on each finger. Oh, that's so he's chording and he's playing around with these little slides. So the whole song has got like this really interesting slide guitar going underneath it. Almost like you put finger picks on on his fret fingers. Yeah, something like something like that. But yeah, it is like they're just little glass or metal. I don't really recall. But like there was that. There was the Who doing, you know, the epic long um, uh, one quick one while one quick one while he's away. Hilarious, fantastic song. Um. It's got Taj Mahal on there. Oh, nice. A fantastic performance, too. Uh, God, I, me and Kevin were just, me and my brother were just recently talking about that guitarist, too, and what he, what else he went on to do, but I forget. Like, I'm drawing a blank at what else he went on to do. But I, just great performances, hands down, yeah. on the whole thing. And it, like, instilled even deeper my love for, like, 60s rock and roll, my love for rock and roll in general, and that Dirty Mac performance itself being, you know, John Lennon, Eric Clapton, Keith Richards playing bass, Mitch Mitchell from Jimi Hendrix playing drums. Like, that as a band, you have so many representatives of what was rock and roll. What was the British invasion? What was English rock and roll, first off. Yeah, exactly. But then, to have one of the most iconic guitarists of all time sit back and playing bass. Yeah. Because like, he's on stage with Eric Clapton and John Lennon. What, what else is he going to do? I don't know he could have played tambourine, you know, maybe maybe, well, maybe hit a hit, hit a triangle a couple times. And you looking deeper into that, you find out, oh, actually, Keith Richards is a fantastic bassist. And he plays bass on a lot of stuff. Yeah, Sympathy for the Devil, for instance, that's him on bass when they recorded it. Interesting. And like, I uh, there's a documentary on YouTube. It's just like just a candid camera kind of thing of them recording that song from start from day one of writing it till the final edit and it's a really interesting watch to see just the evolution of that song yeah going from being you know a full band with an organ instead of a piano having keith playing guitar the whole time with bill there on bass and uh like seeing seeing it go from almost what was like kind of honky-tonk ish country rock to being you know that piano and bass heavy and then just a guitar solo with you know all the percussion parts and everything like watching charlie try to like write that drum line then they bring in that secondary percussionist and it was almost instantaneous and like oh like those kinds of things fascinated me growing up so naturally i would just eventually become a musician and start playing guitar and yeah and i mean i remember you know when i'm when i met you i was friends with your older brother your middle brother kevin um and we were playing you know jamming starting bands in your parents garage Mm -hmm. and you would just be around and that was before before you ended up actually picking up the guitar i think that would have been around the time that like i i went from uh sitting there in front of the tv with my little plastic guitar like sitting you know turning cds on my little toy plastic thing and actually like I was too. I felt too big for that, so I just went and started. You know, when when you guys were out hanging out, not around the house, I would go into his room, listen to his CDs, and grab his Stratocaster and do it then. 
Yeah, because you weren't allowed to touch right. it when he was at home. And one too many times he busted me. He's like, look, if you're going to pick this thing up, you're going to learn how to play it, okay? Yeah, <laughs> and if, like, if I recall correctly, I think I sold your dad your uh, beginner guitar pack. Yeah, my Squire Strat with that uh, little Fender practice amp. Yeah, back when I was back when I was working at mm-hmm. the music shop. Um, so that gets you into actually playing, playing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you obviously hit on your influences, but... You know, what was it about trying to learn what, you know, what problems did you have? I know, uh, uh, let, let me give people a little bit of uh, underground knowledge. Steve and his family had a trampoline when he was a kid and mm-hmm. he fell off and broke his arm. And when they uh, when they cast him, it ended up stunning the growth of his index finger on his left fretting hand. Well, and I mean, it's, it's not, it's not like it's a, it, it it's not, you know, abnormally small, but it's right. still, it, it's not noticeable unless I put my two hands together and then you can really see it. But uh, really what it was, because yeah. So I broke my arm when I was like eight, eight, nine years old. And that did a bunch of nerve damage. And uh, I lost a lot of feeling in my left hand right off the bat. Like it just, it never returned from that. You know, we don't know why it could have been nerve damage caused by the break. It was it was a pretty gnarly break. Like, it was bad. <laughs> and uh, were you there that day, or was it just Kevin and Ashley? It was just front? those two. It was just those two and my mom out front, because I came running around the house with my arm flapping in the air going, Aah. but uh, <clears throat> it was less than a year later that I broke that, that I uh, broke that index finger, like a a small fracture, like real bad jam. It was It wasn't bad enough to cast it or anything. It was just put it in a splint. And that kind of ended up being, I think, what mainly gave it, you know, the odd shape and the weird bend that it's got. So for a long time, you know, after that, for a few years, I mean, even to this day, it's I, I had very limited use. And it was really difficult because eventually the feeling returned to my pinky and my ring finger, like, fully. But I only have, like, partial feeling in my middle finger and my index finger is still completely numb. And it doesn't, like when i'm you know on a guitar neck it's really obvious when i like i can't lay my index finger across a bar chord even to this day but uh yeah that it, was that was fun trying to show you like hey here's here's f right oh here here's how to play a power chord <laughs> right bar. right so. w- which i was able to slowly manipulate that and uh like it it's thankfully because of guitar because of learning how to play guitar that i did regain at least like a lot of use of that of that hand or at least of those fingers, because I I can guarantee that if I didn't play guitar and didn't exercise that hand in the way that I have over the last twenty years, that it would it would not have the strength that it has. It, I would not have the dexterity that I have in it to really do much. Yeah, you know. So that was a lot of struggle, and what ended up happening was that I I had to really like, you know, in in a similar way that you know Tony Iommi in that Jeff Rhodes Hall, he didn't have the tips of a lot of some of his fingers so he he used slides yeah or and then he also ended up getting prosthetics but it changes the way that he had to cord it changed the way that he had to use his hands to where he had that very he has a very interesting different sound because of it you don't realize that's why but you start to look at like his chord shapes and realize like all the suspended notes and stuff like that like oh that makes sense because he's holding his hand in a certain way Oh, okay. Yeah. And it that ended up being something that I had to do. And it was because of that that, like, 
you know, most chord shapes weren't a problem, but it was like anything that it has to bar that index finger and then chord other notes from that, you know, fret other notes from the other fingers. It was always difficult. And it led me to kind of like, it took me a little longer to learn how to play. But I think it was because of like discovering around the time of learning how to play guitar, discovering Incubus and Mike Einziger's interesting chord structures and jazz chord influence and stuff like that that like got me back into playing because i realized like those general everybody's chord shapes aren't the end-all be-all you know you could do a lot of other accentuating things with a chord that not everybody does and then that also creates an entirely new sound for your style of playing yeah and you know um i look at when i was learning to play compared to five years later or whatever it was when you were learning to play, mm. you know, um, and it's kind of funny because you you know, your brother was learning Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and stuff like right. that. I started learning to play and I wanted to play, you know, Nirvana and <clears throat> Nirvana, Green Day, Rancid, MXPX. Right. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to play the punk stuff. You had a very riff-based player and a very chord-based player kind of thing. Yeah, which, I mean... Good complimentary-wise. Yeah, it works out for a band. It just kind of sucks, you know, when it comes to almost 25 years later and I still can't solo to save my life, you know, just because, like, my brain doesn't work that way, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, but, you know, at that time, you were getting, like you said, you were getting into Incubus um, and you started your band and, like you were like mini rage. Well, yeah, it was, uh, we, we started out and it was like, we were, we met in high school, you know, we met like freshman year and we started, uh, you know, talking about wanting to play some music and we started sharing our influences in music. And we had a lot of like, we had very different tastes, each one of us, but there was a lot of crossover. And it like, as we started, you know, got to know each other, became closer friends and started actually playing music together. We started like, we, we fell in love with each other's, you know, brand of music so it was like aaron was way more like 80s classic rock he loved uh guns and roses was like was his band like he loved guns and roses he loved some of the uh you know schlock rock of the 80s and stuff like that but he also big time like classic rock you know general classic rock fan mm -hmm. and then you had our bassist who was way more like corn slipknot uh heavy metal more or less pantera and things like that yeah and uh, and then there was your drummer who was just a spaz. And then Tristan, which was awesome because he was like, he was just a cultural sponge. He loved hip hop. He loved classic rock. He loved modern rock. He loved anything. He loved pop music. He he, he really was like, that was what was awesome too, was that he just was a fan of the arts. He was just a fan of music itself. It didn't matter what it was. And he was a spaz. Yeah, I tell you what, that kid, I mean, yeah, he was a fun drummer. Uh, it was fun how we pulled stuff from different places, uh, you know, but af even being around him in just a hangout situation, I probably wouldn't want to do this either, but definitely don't throw that kid behind a drum set and <laughs> give him a can of monster or, or do if you want to, or do if you want to play the music that we had to play, <laughs> you know, cause oh my gosh, he, like he was just a little ball of energy. I yeah. Mean, it was, he was a little, we, we, we call him my like little bulldog, little pit bull. Cause he was, he was like, you know five 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 four five five just a little but like stocky like not 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 fat but 
built like a football player. Oh, yeah. He, like, he was a thick dude. Me and him ended up boxing one time. And he didn't want to. I didn't want to because I knew he could. I knew he could knock me out. Like, we had boxing gloves in the garage. And we would just like, you know, have fun and box each other. And it was a good time. Oh, it was a blast. Yeah, it was a blast. Yeah, there was many a knockouts, many a black eyes and bloody noses. But we were always laughing. We were always enjoying it. But uh, like we were both kind of like we didn't want to box each other because, well, for me, I'm looking at him like, dude, you are stronger than me. You are you're more muscular. You're faster. Like you're an athlete at this point. I'm not. And he's looking at me like, I don't want to box you because you're almost a foot taller than me. And your reach like you could just hold my head here and punch me continuously. And well, we're like, all right, well, I, I guess it's fair. <laughs> you can knock me out in one punch and I could just keep hitting you before you could reach me. So let's go ahead and do this. All right. So, yeah, we're going and going, and I, I swing high. Of course, swing a little too high. He ducks below it and gets me with an uppercut and just out. <laughs> like, for a second, I... Seeing stars. Saw Tweeties, I fell back. Brother caught me and grabbed me, you know, held me up. But, like, uh, but back to, you know, our musical influence and not, you know, our fighting influence. But then you had me, who was way more of the... I, I love the 90s rock. I had yours and Kevin's taste in music. Of you know, Chili Peppers, Smashing Pumpkins, Smashing Pumpkins, and that and Silver Chair, Silver Chair, like that. It was at that time that I discovered Freak Show, and that was a huge influence to us. It was also around that time that like I dug deeper into the Incubus catalog. So when I got into them, it was around the Make Yourself album, or it was the Make Yourself album, which to this day is easily top three album for me. Like it just it meant so much to me. Okay, top three. Well, we're we're actually we're going to talk about top albums here in a little oh, bit oh fine so. but um so like but it was around that time that i started digging deeper into the incubus catalog i mean thanks to your massive cd books and it was like science and fungus among us i was like "Ooh, this is heavy this is this is cool it was also at the time that i got into primus and uh you know that my bass and uh, uh the friend that ended up becoming the bassist uh, who played guitar but you know he was kind of like that mindset i was like i'm not that good so i might as well play bass i like bass we both got into Primus, and then in turn also like Incubus, like early Incubus and stuff. So we really delved deep into like the complicated playing of the bass and like a bass not being a background instrument, but being in the forefront. You know, I was yeah. So we, as he was learning, I was learning right along with him. He learned little pop slap tricks and little different you know triplets and things like that. And he, you know, I'd watch him doing like, ooh, how'd you do that? How'd you do that? Let me see that. Give me the bass. I'd pick it up and I'd try to practice it myself. So it was always like, no matter the music that we ended up playing, which our singer ended up getting really big and raging as the machine, the music scene around here was very metal. So we didn't want to be, I mean, Tim wanted to be, the bassist wanted to be a metal band. The rest of us didn't really want to be like a hardcore like thrash or anything like that. We were way more into like Alice in Chains and Silverchair and Incubus and Raging as the Machine, like to go full into like the the hard hard heavy metal right yeah more more melodic than thrashy yeah i mean i guess new metal would probably be the best way to do it you know just take limp biscuit off that but uh we so don't hate on the biscuit <laughs> you can't anymore now you gotta love them you know 20 years ago it was really easy to be like screw fred durst but now it's just like dude he's my hero not really though but uh i just think it's funny being somebody who got into limp biscuit kind of early you know, um, oh yeah, they all did. You know, you, Chad, and Kevin. Like I remember hearing like those albums um, blasting out of his bedroom. 
the the first album was great. The second album was good, and then after that, it went really downhill. <laughs> it just got really bad. You know. But uh, so no hate, love you, Fred. We all had yeah right. We all had all these varying tastes in music, but they did. S- we we did find a crossroads in bands like Silverchair, Incubus, Raging the Machine, uh, and Alice in Chains and stuff. But we found a good mixture of what we like to play, what we all like to listen to, being represented, being represented, <laughs> being represented by those uh, by those various artists. So we kind of like pulled our sound a little bit to try to be a little bit like that. So we were playing, you know, in the metal scene around us, and it was awesome because everybody else was kind of very, you know, it's it's weird to say it about metal music, but very vanilla metal, like very just. Oh, it was very corn slipknot. I, I mean, it it all sounded like Kill Switch Engage. Or well, yeah, that too. It, yeah, it all it, it everybody kind of sounded the same, and they were, and it makes sense because they were all playing. You know, you had the bassist; they were all playing Ibanez basses. You had. Uh, Ibanez guitars, Ibanez and Schecter guitars, <laughs> through Line Six or, or crates, crate amplifiers, or if they actually had some money, some nice decent Marshall stacks and stuff like that. You know, you saw some mesas, you saw some Marshalls, but everybody kind of had a very, very similar sound, uh, and especially the guitar oh, had yes. a very kind of anemic, brittle sound to it. Scoop you know? mids, yeah, yeah, that's what it was. It was and then scoop you, mids, man. And then you had us coming up with. Our style and me, you know, I'm not playing an Ibanez or Schecter through a Line Six. I'm playing a, a Stratocaster through a Fender Twin, you know, Solid State Twin Reverb. And um, so it had right off the bat, my guitar sound was completely different than everybody else's. It was a little thicker, it was a little fuller, and plus the way that I, the way that I always set my amplifiers, you you, you know, I've talked about it is that like I don't usually like running distortion pedals through a clean channel. I don't really like clean channels on most amplifiers anyways. I tend to take the gain on the amplifier itself and bring it way down so that way I could have just on the edge of breakup on my dirty channel Yeah. and then run a distortion through that with its gain just a little bit down. So when they're together, it has a really thick, heavy sound, but individually they're... They they also individually have their own sounds. You know, I can click over to the clean channel on my amplifier with that same distortion. It will almost sound like it's coming through like a record player. And I was able to use that to my advantage for some of our tones. And then I could also click the distortion pedal off on the dirty channel of the amplifier, and I have a pretty much clean tone, but more but thicker. You know, not as brittle. It doesn't just hit the high end of your eardrum and kind of stuff. Like it actually like. It fills you. You can feel it a little bit more. Yeah. So, like, we we had that going for us. We had way more eccentric bass lines and stuff like that. Our drum beats weren't just, like, blast beat or, you know, rolling double kick drums. It was, like, Tristan wrote drum riffs. Like, he, he wrote rhythmic riffs to what we were playing. So we just had that. We had a way of standing out, which was very good for us to be able to, like, be a good complimentary band yeah for uh for uh especially the band that we ended up playing with all the time which was uh uh this band called without a soul who were they were like a year younger than us but they had more money <laughs> and better equipment and uh they, and they were a little bit more you know standard metal but like they really fell 
they really fell in love with our sound and they loved hanging out with us. We became great friends mm-hmm. and it was always very complimentary for us to play shows together because it just, we, we were different tones. We were different styles and we both liked each other's style. Like of all the bands that we played with that were just your standard metal group, we enjoyed them the most because I mean, they were our friends, but just, it became a good complimentary friendship and playership. And like, we would have times where, you know, because we were so close friends and we would always play together where like if we're on stage they're front row or they're in the audience hyping us and like getting people wound up and it you know those kind of people make you enjoy the show better make you enjoy that band better and in turn that you remember them and then vice versa when they're on we're in the crowd doing the same thing and like a lot of times marty the guitarist would you know he'd have his marshall stack on stage just there and he would offer, you're like, go ahead and just play through mine. Don't worry about bringing your amp down and setting up. I was like, okay, well, um, I'm going to have to reset your entire amplifier, though. I was like, I know how to deal with them. I know how to handle a Marshall. Like, at this point, Kevin, you know, my brother had had Marshalls. Other friends of mine had had them. I knew how to play with them. God, I think I was playing the JCM 800 at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they were just in my garage all the time when I was learning how to play guitar. So I knew how to, I knew, like, how to get tones that I liked out of it. So I... I would tell him, like, I have to change all your settings. He's like, it's fine. I know where they're at. Blah, blah, blah. He, he he would, like, set it. When he finally gets a good tone that he liked, he'd set it, and he'd mark his spaces with a Sharpie and stuff. So that way, you know, if anything happens in transit or he's messing around with his tone, he could always bring it back easily. But uh, he would – uh, I, I so I'd set up, and I'd do all my changes to his amplifier. And then, you know, we'd play our show – and he's hearing me playing through his amplifier, but it sounds like a completely different rig that he's never seen before in his life. And you and you eventually, like, he's sitting there just rocking in front of me, and then he's just, like, listening, and then he'd all of a sudden just get on stage and walk to his amplifier and, like, try to memorize the settings. So that way he could try to uh, mimic that. And Too stuff. bad like, he didn't have a camera phone at the time. <laughs> right, right. And uh, it got to the point where he actually got, he got a silver Sharpie, and the next time I set it, he marked my positions on it. Nice. And, um... It, it, but, and slowly I started hearing their style kind of take a little bit more of that thicker tone psychedelic, you know, vibe that we had. And we started to get a little heavier, like we influenced each other. And like eventually Tim ended up going to their band. That's the bass player. The bass player. At, our bass player ended up going to their band, which made sense. He wanted to be in a metal group. And we, we welcomed it. We're like, you know, even though it was you know to us it was heartbreaking because it you know that that bass sound was our heart and soul but we're like we can find a basis we can make this work which we didn't we did but we didn't like it ended up band folded shortly after that yeah but it was always it it made it really fun though to have him in their band then because then when we would play together we'd be able to bring him on stage and kind of have crossover jams and stuff like that which made it even more fun so one thing that you were talking about earlier was you know when tim was learning and you were learning and you know, I mean, that's that's what early bands are for, mm-hmm. you know, which is great and wonderful. And especially, you know, being in a I mean, we're in a city, but it's not a huge city. Like, Mm-mm. you know, if if gear is still at your house, they could somebody could ride their bike over in 10, 15 right, right. minutes. Yeah, like, we're, we're in the su- we're in the suburbs is the best way to really look at it. Yeah. Like, um, I'm just trying to, you know, give people who people who don't know the town next to Gary, Indiana, um an idea of you know how big it is it's not right. really that you know it's l- let me th- 
think here. If you live in a city, you would consider it the country. If you lived in the country, you would consider it a city. It's like literally right in between. But uh, it's it it's about six or seven miles from the lake to to the edge of the city, mm-hmm. and then it's about four miles across. I want to say somewhere like that. Yeah. Four hundred. Four, five hundred, yeah, five hundred, yeah, five miles. They don't need a geography lesson. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, they don't. No, they don't. They don't need a geography lesson. Are you sure? Because I was just getting ready to talk about. uh, You can put the globe away, John. I was getting ready to talk about like the last ice age and the breakup and the glaciers creating lateral moraines here. We'll get there on another one. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, yeah. So you you were saying how you know you two were learning together, Uh but. And Bolt's just falling in love with base. That that's what leads you into the base world. Yeah, and I know, you know, you you fiddled and fiddled, and it took quite a while for you to actually like start legitimately playing bass or being right. you know owning a bass, being a bass right. player, other than you know just. Well, that you had one laying around the garage because I had one over there or whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, guitar was always my first love. Uh, that was my that's my first instrument, and I mean, even even to this day, I will I will still, if given the opportunity, pick up a guitar over a bass, just because uh, it, it. I can't even say it's more fun. I just I don't know. It's it's my first instrument. It's my comfort zone. Well, that but, and it's, you know, because I I play bass as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always out of necessity. Definitely, more definitely or less. a different style than you, but um, for for me, I think it's easier with a guitar to sit there and actually play a song and make yeah. it make it sound full, make it sound like a song. You know, um, at least with the way that we play, right? You know, right. I, I've got friends who are bass players who smoke and blow my mind. Can can. Well, turn it, turn it into a three-part instrument. You got guys like we. I mean, there's guys like Marky who, regardless of which one you hand him a guitar or a bass, he's going to floor you. Like it's just gonna, he's gonna melt your face in whatever way he wants to play. And those guys just blow my mind. How like first off, you could be so talented at one of them in the first place is just astronomical to me. But to be as talented, equally talented on both of them, that blows my mind. That that's that's a level of dexterity because you know you may think on the surface that they are i mean they are similar but they're far from identical and especially in the way that you play them and rhythmically the way that they're played is guitar and bass is vastly different as mm-hmm. the spectrum so when when would you say that you actually started really focusing on your bass playing i was i mean it would be about 10 years ago when you and i uh we we had started playing together. You and I did. Yep. And all I was. We have a band called Midwest Rendezvous. Yep. And we were doing we were doing our acoustic thing, just two acoustic guitars, and uh, we were having a lot of fun doing that. But we, did, you and I, decided that we wanted to you know bring members in. We wanted to try to get an actual like full band, full band and stuff, and plug in and play electric, play loud. We got we got our drummer. We searched around for bassists, and. I, 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 because of that teenage experience, because of that band, and because of my influences from that time, I have a very, like, I, I have very high standards for a bassist. 
even more i have higher standards for the bassist than i would for a guitarist really like to me it kind of becomes secondary like the guitar doesn't have to do much but a bassist has to be able to span a lot of soundscape you know not just be technically fast at like one thing or another or anything like that like exceptionally talented at slap pop or something like that but they just have to be able like they have to have variety they have to have a scope of sound because all my favorite bassists do you know i mean flea yeah. flea isn't always just wailing like he knows when to cut it back he knows when to just two notes works you know he knows and then he knows when to kick it on I mean, and, even and guys he, like Les Claypool. And he knows like when to too. fill. He knows when to fill in with a melodic line, right? When to throw in a little fill here and there, like you know, three note progression. Then all of a sudden, back to three note progression. Like, so jazz influence, I guess, would be the best way to really look at it. jazz and funk influence of so being able to improvise, being able to like move around on a bass and not be not have a stagnant single note or only rely on being able to play like faster like complicated riffs like to have variance yeah so it was in our time of like trying to figure out what we're going to do about a bassist that i i just decided screw it i'll just play the bass and you had gotten your jazz bass um right that's jazz bass right it's jazz style that's jazz um you had gotten that and i mean we just had it around to play with but then i you you just kept it in my house as with most of the gear at well my parents house and uh it was the jam spot. Yeah. I just started I started taking that thing inside and spending the day. You know, you'd come over when you get off of work and we'd play around all night long, but like while I was at home doing nothing during the day, I'd go on and I'd watch like flea videos or uh instructional videos that he had put out back in like the nineties. Mm-hmm. And uh I'd watch like Carol Kay, uh her instructional videos and stuff like that. I just started learning a lot more and um we met Bernie. Or well, you introduced me to Bernie, and we brought him in to kind of try to you know feel him out to play guitar. And you know, even though he didn't really stick around to play guitar with us that much, he was still real fun to hang out with. And he was a big fan of Primus, and he actually gave me uh, these two Primus books, these two like two part anthology book. And I started going through that, learning how to you know play Primus tunes. And it was around that time that I realized, like, wow, I could actually be pretty good at this guitar. I always felt like. I, I hit points of stagnate, uh, stagnation. I don't really get better. I'm not that good technically, but when I'm in a jam, when I'm playing with people, I can I can play pretty well and, you know, sound good from yeah. what I've been told. But, you know, as just a general player, like if we're just trading licks back and forth, people are going to stop me all the time because I just don't have that. I... I I never learned guitar solos when I learned how to play songs. I always end up improvising those unless it's a very simple or very like specific melodic line. Yeah. Most of the time I'm just improvising them within the box that they're playing. Yeah. And that's something I've, that's something I noticed with your guitar playing is after you started playing the bass, your guitar playing ended up changing as well. Yeah. You know, um, Oh yeah, because we we play, um, or we're both big fans of the Grateful Dead, so we play Dead songs. You know, whether we're playing them out at when we're doing a show, or whether it's just us hanging out, right? And you know, we're we're we throwing Dead in, songs. Back. We just end up in E, and it's like, okay, I guess we're playing Cassidy. Like, <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think 
I saw a real build in your guitar playing at that point, which was well, kind of nice. Yeah, it, and that was because like I actually forced myself to sit there and all those things that I like wouldn't learn that I just for some reason either had a mental block for or just felt like I wasn't good enough to be able to play, you know. Uh, when it came to like solos and stuff like that, the very like specific note for note kind of like movements and stuff like that. I had to force myself to shut that part of my brain off to tell me that I, that I'm not good enough to play that kind of stuff because that's literally what you have to do when you're playing bass. You know, it isn't just put yourself in a chord and, you know, fiddle around until it sounds right. You know, which is a lot of guitar really. If you learn chord shapes, you can end up being a very good guitarist just by fiddling around within those chord shapes. Yeah, I mean, there's the whole caged system, yeah. which I mean, I don't want to get I don't want to get that deep into explaining it, but but it, it, like you, you just take you take your basic chords and you can move them anywhere right. on the neck, and you got now you've got different yeah. chord. It, it, yeah, it's just a different key of this. It, it's the same chord shape and a different key, and then you can move, you know, move around within those frets of that chord. So it 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 forced me to be a little less freestyle and a little bit more conscious of every note that I'm playing. And it was because of that I felt a big change in my guitar playing as well and like a lot more confidence in my ability to, you know, lead and play solo and stuff like that. But it still wasn't, you know, that was 2012, 2013-ish. And that was after, you know, after we had kind of hung up that idea the drummer stopped showing up. We stopped. We, we went back to just playing a couple acoustic guitars. And it still works. It still works. And uh, we've been that way since, and I'm happy with that. And then it was after that that I went and spent, you know, that's a year in Kalamazoo, living in a house with a bunch of other artists, uh, most musicians, but also, like, you know, fire dancers and visual artists, painters and stuff like that. The good old bohemian hippie lifestyle. Was, and it was fantastic. My bedroom being right next to the jam room, which had a drum set in it, like, you haven't lived until you've learned how to fall asleep to somebody playing the drums a door away from you. <laughs> right. Like, I can sleep through anything now, man. You can put me, I could be in a tent next to a train track. I will sleep through it. But uh, it was being around all those musicians that, like, it, it taught me a lot more about playing, a lot more about subtleties of playing with other people of uh you know sharing a lot of the sharing a lot of the sonic environment with folks yeah the whole uh what you don't play is as important as what you do exactly play. yeah and then also being around a lot of really good you know uh, talking about bass being being around around a lot of really good basses and seeing their techniques and seeing the variety of ways people play and then i brought that back home with me and still just playing guitar primarily and it was a couple of years after that that uh i i uh kevin and i my brother and i it was in the uh it was in 2015 it was the summer of the uh fairly well shows yep we you and i had gone to that i paid a uh soldier field uh parking employee 40 bucks to sneak me into the second half of the last show and that was fantastic and um you know, just high on that, just that that whole environment of that whole weekend was fantastic. It's like, oh man, I wanted I wanted to get back to the festival scene. I wanted to get back to you know my people. That felt like my people, which, you know, are the deadheads in the lot. And it just it, it was awesome having that around Soldier Field. You're like you're in the middle of Chicago, but you feel like you're in a field in the middle of nowhere with 
a football stadium. Yeah. It, 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 like, in between everybody. And especially since, you know, um, in 1995, you'd have been six years old. Mm-hmm. I was 12. And that was the last time that the dad had played there. Yeah. Because, well, I was, I was RIP Jerry. Yeah, I was five when Jerry passed. So I turned six like a month, like a month and a half after that. Yes. Yeah. But uh, and my so parents we didn't that show. And yeah, so we never really got to have that. Yeah. We never got to see Jerry, but we've gotten to listen to a lot of Jerry. Like we've, you know, with Dead Hours, with your extensive CD collections and stuff like that. Like we we've and and now with things like uh, we've experienced the as de- much the Jerry Ar- as most people who ever went on tour with the dead. The like, dead archives. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I I, for, I forget what my app is called because but, it's just it's just in my music section here. Yeah, Deadhead Archives. Yeah. But so uh, that that like that put the fire back in my belly. That's like, oh yeah, I want to be around this more again. Like I want to get back to this. And um, well, you ended up going to Lock In that year, and it was right after that that uh, Kevin hit me up and let me know, like, hey, you want to go to Lock In? I was like, yeah, I was, I don't know, maybe. Where's it at? It's like it's in, you know, it's in Virginia, you know, West Virginia or Virginia, I forget. But uh, I was like, ooh, that's a that's a distance for a show. He's like, yeah, and tickets are pretty expensive. He's like, but have you looked at the lineup? I was like, no. So I pull it up and I look at the lineup, and sure enough, I immediately text him back. I was like, yes, we're going, let's go. And like it was the week of, we went. We get in my car, we drive out there. We don't have tickets, we don't have anything, we don't have anything planned. We just pack our stuff in the car and we go. And we get out there, and it was a four-day festival. Thursday was like a pre-party, and then it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Well, the week leading up to the festival, there was a series of big storms, and the whole grounds were flooded and destroyed by the storms. So Thursday, the whole like pre-party thing essentially got canceled. So you had hundreds, if not thousands, of, of hippies. Showing up to this festival, which that year was especially Grateful Dead heavy because it being the 50th anniversary, the lineup that there was, which had every member of the Grateful Dead, uh, living member of the Grateful Dead, anybody who's ever played with the Dead, with the exception of Trey Anastasio. Uh, was Tom Constantine there? No, maybe. He might have been. I don't know. Like The lineup was so dense that okay. if there was a name I didn't recognize on it, it it's gone because it was like... It was epic. Like when I get to it in a second, like the one day of the festival was just absolutely amazing. But like, so we ended up having to find camp, like us and as well as hundreds of other people, if not, like I said, thousands of other people had to find camping throughout this, along this highway in Virginia. And we do that, you know, long story short, we do that. We get up early the next morning, we go there and we get in queue. We uh, pull up in queue for the show, still have no tickets. And the ticket prices, when you go to a major music festival, are outrageous as it is. But when you buy them at the door of the festival, they're even more so. So we're, we're trying to find a way out around it. And we end up scoring some really like cheap weekend passes, um, as well as parking passes. And so we go, and we're there, and we're hanging out, and we're seeing some shows. And it, it's just outrageous. Like the whole weekend started with it, it was September 11th was the Friday. John Popper uh, blew the Nash, blew the uh, Star Spangled Banner on a harp. Outrageous. And then you had String Cheese Incident and the Doobie Brothers play a set together called the Doobie Incident. That was the start of the weekend. 
Yeah. As Strange Cheese Incident and the Doobie Brothers, just massively amazing. And that whole day was just fantastic. You had um you had a Jefferson uh Jefferson Airplane tribute with Hot Tuna, who are the guitarist and bassist of Jefferson Airplane, and then various artists there. And then you had immediately after that Tedeschi Trucks did a uh Joe Cocker tribute set with a bunch of various artists and you had guys like <coughs> you had guys like Jimmy Cliff come out and play and you know, sing a couple songs and Chris Robinson and stuff like that. Just amazing show. And then it was the next day <coughs> that uh you it was the big concert, the you know, the big set of performances, which <coughs> like started off with Tedeschi Trucks band and then you had Warren Haynes band play that day. Not not Government Mule. Warren Haynes. Right. So he plays his set. He had already been on stage and played with uh, a song or two with Tedeschi Trucks. Probably, you know, played a couple Allman Brothers tunes with them. He did his set. And then after him was Robert Plant and his band, which was just amazing. To be in the presence of A Zeppelin, like, that was awesome. And it sounded great. Like, it was a really cool show. <clears throat> and then after him was... I believe it was immediately after him was widespread panic on the stage next to him because you had you had side by side stages and when one band would end the next one would begin and because it was a Grateful Dead like oriented festival and because it was the 50th anniversary they were all beginning and ending their sets with don't fade away so you had not fade away not fade away <laughs> so you had the crowd chanting the chorus of it while the drums are playing that rhythm. And then the next band, as their faders would go down, the next band's faders would go up in the same rhythm, and they'd play a verse or two, and then they'd play their set. And uh, so Widespread Planet played right after that. First time I'd ever seen them as well. Amazing show. I, you know, I'd always loved the band, but I never realized how much I loved the band. And Jimmy Cliff came on and did a few songs with him, with them as well. Well, also during all of these sets, at least one song, Warren Haynes came up and played with them. Well... With everybody. So, like, Tedeschi Trucks, his own band, Robert Plant, and then now Widespread Panic. Like, f- now four times, four different bands, and one of them his own band, he had been on stage with. And while Widespread's playing, my brother and I realized, like, man, we want to do this. Like, he's a fantastic guitarist. And, uh, like, man, I could be up there. We could be, we could be up there doing this. We could be playing this stuff. Could like. Be. We're sitting there watching them play, and it's like it doesn't seem like they're that far out of our zone of playability. Like, obviously, they're very good. They're very talented and unique musicians who are out of our skill set, but it wouldn't take that long of practice and play to be able to hold a candle to it. So Widespread finishes it up. On the next stage was Billy and the Kids, which is Bill Kreutzmann's band. Bill Kreutzmann's the drummer of the Grateful Dead. Drummer of the Grateful Dead. And he had... One of... And he had Mickey Hart and Bob Weir on stage with him, with his band, which are the other members of the Grateful Dead. The other drummer and guitar player singer. Yeah. And then while they're playing over there, of course, who comes on stage and plays a couple songs? Warren Haynes. Why not? Why not? You know, he just kind of played with literally everybody so far. Why not do that? While they're playing over on that stage, me and Kevin stayed in front of the stage we were at because after them was the bassist for the Grateful Dead doing his band Phil and Friends and he had special guest Warren Haynes who knew and Carlos Santana so we're like we're not moving we're gonna sit here and just get our faces melted by Carlos Santana and Phil Lesh 
that was amazing because you got to, we got to sit there and watch Phil like tune his amp and like set up and sound check himself on stage playing with his bandmates who are on another stage like a solid 20 yards away from him and then he'd end up sitting there dancing with his granddaughter pointing like look at uncle bobby and stuff it was just really cool to see they came on they played it was amazing it was, it, like outstanding show uh to the point to where Carlos Santana actually stood there with his hands behind his back, just watching Phil's guitarist, watching Warren Haynes, like not really like feeling out of place, but also just being absolutely mystified at being on this stage at that moment. Just taking it in. That's that's Carlos though, man. He's he's such a fan. And that, and he's so cosmic. Like, yeah, he's like, he's spiritually appreciated. Can you believe that the stars aligned and created me being here to experience this with all of right. these people this magical and these rainbow unicorn fart of music that is going on or, that i just happen to be a part of yeah like, it, it was and that's what it felt like and every once in a while like he'd forget oh it's my turn <laughs> and like he'd oh he'd swing his hands back over his guitar and run up to the front of the stage and just wail it, it was epic and that was the end of the main stage yeah so warren haynes had now played an entire two-hour set with phil and friends after playing throughout the day with a bunch of other with bands. With everybody else. And playing a full hour and a half set of his own with his band, with his Warren Haynes band. He gets off stage, immediately goes to the Woods stage, and plays a four-hour Government Mule set. Oh, good golly. Which ended with them playing, uh, was it Morrison? No, uh, Waiting for the Sun, the Doors album, front to back. Oh, good golly. Yeah. And it was it was epic. It was like a moment that like I actually became a fan of Warren Haynes, like an absolute fanatic of him is like his workmanship, his love for playing like he just he played he was on and off stage for about 12 hours straight. And I, then, I think it's funny because now here here's the part where you're like, OK, so government you got done playing at three in the morning. And we were walking back to our tent, and <laughs> right. Warren Haynes comes up with a guitar, and he's like, hey, they guys, want to play around a campfire? And he just finds a campfire. I wish. <laughs> yeah, that would have been epic. I bet. He, he, the, the funny thing is, is you know, somebody like that, you kind of see him doing it. You would. Uh, he would have done it. If he hadn't put in the last 16 hours of playing, he probably would have. He was probably yeah. ready to go to bed, though. But what well what ended up happening was we all went back to our campsites and stuff and we we you know it was like three a.m. but nobody was going to bed like everyone was lighting their fires everyone was hanging out and uh, the guy that one of the guys that we were camping with had uh, he was a percussionist he had a whole bunch of noisemakers and uh, hand drums and stuff and little ha- little drum circle starts which is of course to be expected and he also had this really. There's a really bad fretless acoustic bass. Oh, good golly. It was broken. Like, the neck was, like, broken up a little bit. Well, I'm just thinking you get you get a bunch of hippies around stuff that you can bang on, and, right. yeah, a drum circle's going to start. Right. Well, naturally, there's enough people hitting things, so I grab the bass. I'm, like, I'm just going to sit back here and just have fun, and I just start wailing on it. And, like I said, it was a poorly playing fretless bass. I had no idea what I was doing with it, or at least I felt like I had no idea what I was doing with it. I mean, I'm sure it was late at night and we were all inebriated and stuff. But Kevin's standing over my shoulder and he and apparently he could hear what I'm playing because as soon as like the the beat dies down and we stop the jam, he grabs me by the shoulders. He's like, you are my bassist. Holy crap. We're going home. We're getting you a bass and we're doing this. So we did. Naturally, we went home. I got a bass, you know, within a couple of months. I 
uh, picked one out and my folks ended up, it was really inexpensive five string. My folks ended up buying it for me from me, from John at, at the music shop at the, at a different music shop of the same company. Um, yeah, we him and I started playing, and that was when I really dove into bass. Really started getting into it, and really decided that it was like, yeah, I have to do something musically. Like, I, I can't hang this back up again after a couple of years like I've been doing all this time. I have to find a way to stick with this stuff and just keep playing. It, 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 even if it's not necessarily playing in bands, I have to do something musically or in the music industry. And... That's where I ended up, you know, we stopped playing and then I kept playing. You and I keep playing together. You know, every year we at least play one show. But we, you know, we take the full year of jamming around and picking out tunes and playing with stuff and before we actually Yeah, because our a sets full are set. completely different every year. Yeah, every year we try to learn new songs. That's been amazing too. Like start to realize like how many songs have I learned in my lifetime? Cuz every single year we're doing another seven or ten and then picking the five out of those that we like the most but like i had the thought process of like trying to get into studio musicianship and like making a day job out of it to where you know i'm past that age where i want to be like a touring musician or like a rock star like that that's long in the past i just i want to play yeah that you know? i mean i'd love to get paid for it <laughs> um being being a touring musician is for some people Mm-hmm. I don't think it would be for me. I, you know, that's what I wanted to do when I was in high school. Like, yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to be a rock early star. Late 20s, 100% would have been on board with it. But by the time I hit 25, I would have been, I would have been done with it. Yeah. You know? And my thing, like, I was 20 and I went on tour with my friend's band. I was the, uh, I was the roadie, the driver. They, mm-hmm. they were going to go out on, they had a, a week long tour scheduled, but they didn't have a vehicle big enough to, carry all the equipment so they were gonna have to take three vehicles right so they asked if i would be able to borrow my parents suburban Mm -hmm. and we packed up a whole band into a suburban and went out for a week you always got if if one of the members of the band doesn't have doesn't have that vehicle you always have that one buddy we had a dude we had a guy uh one of our friends who was essentially like our roadie just because he had a big old 70s station wagon yeah and you know the thing is for me, man. I went out for I went out for a week, and it started out. It was fun. It was a blast. I woke up that last day in Springfield, outside of Springfield, Illinois. Had to bust ass to get up to Detroit. Uh-huh. Drive eight hours to Detroit. By the time I'm getting there, I'm so frustrated that I'm flipping off truckers. Right. Like, and I'm I'm a pretty chill dude. And then there's the smell of feet. Well, there's, yeah. <laughs> like, not only does that all sound exhausting in itself, but the smells kick in then. <laughs> you know what, though? It, it actually it wasn't that bad because we were lucky enough that um, they had planned ahead and talked to the other bands and, and stuff and mm-hmm. arranged actual housing for us for most of the nights. Right on. So you guys weren't just like bouncing from parking lot to parking lot like Right. Digi- we were we were sleeping on motels and stuff. We were sleeping on floors. There was one night in a, there was one night but in, in a, a house digi- at least. Yeah. Like, yeah, we were sleeping on floors in a house or an apartment. Right. You know, there was one night in a dingy motel, but the thing was is like other than the fact that we've got backpacks full of dirty clothes. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. We were all clean at least. Right. So, 
Um, yeah, the, let's see. We're we're getting close to an hour, Steve. We haven't even hit where we need to hit. So I've got an idea. Let's turn this into a two episode situation. Um, we'll end up uh, discussing more on the next episode because we haven't even gotten how you got to right work where you work. We're getting at the good part. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, top five albums, man. Top five albums is. That's that's damn near impossible. Uh, I know. I mean, especially no, being put on the spot, right? In no particular order, for sure. No particular order. Um, Pink Floyd, Animals, Incubus, Make Yourself. Mm, draw between Zeppelin three and Zeppelin four. I think I have to go with three. Oh goodness, see. Chili Peppers, One Hot Minute, and, you know, argue with me in the comments. Um, I mean, I don't even know if that's top five. Uh, no, that's four right now. Well, I don't even know if that would be in the top five, but that was very influential. Uh, and then uh, Grateful Dead, Shakedown Street. Oh, Shakedown Street. Yeah, that's a good one, man. I, that was my first CD. Lil' George produced the crap out of that. Oh, yeah. And that was uh, when I was like five, four or five years old. My uncle bought that for me. That was my first CD. He's like, just pick a CD out. We're at Flipside Records. Right. That was the name of that place. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we're there. And I just I, I loved the cover of it. Yeah. That's where I played my first concert. Right. Flipside, Flipside. Really? Parking lot. Yeah. yeah. I, I love the cover art on it. And then I knew the song Franklin's Tower. Not Franklin's Tower. Yeah. Franklin's Tower is on that one. No, 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 no. Uh, Fire on the Mountain. That one's on that one. Yeah. Yeah, I knew that song, and I knew uh, Good Lovin'. Like, I'm, we're talking about five, four or five years old me. Already knew these songs. Right. Like, that tells you how music played into my life. But I think that's pretty close to the best top five that I can gather on the spot. I mean, maybe, uh, you know what? I might have to replace One Hot Minute with Freak Show. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good place to switch those two out. Okay. Silverchair Freak Show definitely did a number on me, too, as a teenager. Like, I mean, to this day, I still pop it on all the time and love it. Yeah, fair enough. So. All right. So uh, with that, we're going to wrap it up for today. Uh, thank you for listening to Steve's coherent ramblings about uh, <laughs> concerts in Virginia and um, playing in high school bands and uh we'll get back next week and we'll hit more of the nitty-gritty yeah all right thank you so much this is stage in a podcast